concerning the book of Galatians, and I want to give you an overview and a context of what this letter is all about uh, before we begin exploring verse by verse. And we'll, we'll, we'll definitely look at some, uh, some in all of the chapters of Galatians tonight just to help us to see uh, what the overview and the whole tenor of this letter is all about. And I, I think sometimes we, uh, I mean, we can preach individual passages, we can uh, expository preach, you know, certain passages, but it's very helpful for us to understand context. It's very helpful for us to understand the overall meaning or reason behind uh, what Paul was writing about. And so I don't want to miss that uh, because it will help us as we work our way through this uh, to really grab hold of the truth uh, that God has uh, in store for us. And so uh, we're going to do that tonight. I'm just going to direct your attention to verses 1 through 9, first of all, in chapter 1. So follow along as I read. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Right here in these first nine verses, they really do give us some insight into what this letter is actually all about and the reason why Paul wrote it. It's not just one uh, singular issue, uh, but, it, but, but it is, they're both related. And we'll get to some of that in a little bit. But the purpose of this epistle and the main reason for writing to, to the churches of Galatia was to preserve the purity of the gospel. That was the main reason. There were those, as Paul says in verse 6, who would present another gospel. Look at that in verse 6 again. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And then he says in verse 7, which is not another. And you might be confused by those words, and they're different words, but basically what Paul is saying here, he says you've been removed from, from the gospel to another gospel, which is not another, meaning it's not another one of the same kind. It's not something that is equal to, it's, it's not a gospel at all, is what he's saying. And, 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 he's, and he says, uh, he talks about those, you've been called into the grace of Christ. And what we're going to find through the whole epistle is this idea between grace and works. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there were some who were adding to the gospel of grace. 
And so Paul is addressing this major issue. And he says in verse 7, uh, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. This was something that was very troubling in the churches, not just a particular church, singular church, but the churches of Galatia. Notice that in verse 2, he says, All the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. And so there was, there was a, a real problem that Paul was serious about addressing because these were perverting the gospel of Christ. And if the gospel of Christ is perverted, there is no foundation. There is no salvation. So it was a big deal. Now, note with me the involvement of the Apostle Paul. Let's get a little history, a little background here with the churches of Galatia. Paul had been in the region of Galatia twice before he wrote this epistle. And again, verse 2 tells us that it's churches of Galatia. There were multiple churches represented in this letter. And the book of Acts tells us that there were churches that Paul established on his first missionary journey with Barnabas when they had visited Asia Minor, which, by the way, I don't have a map for you, uh, but if you were to look on a map and you found modern-day Turkey and you went to the southern part of that country, that's the region uh, that the Apostle Paul is talking about. The Romans referred to that area of southern Asia Minor as the province of Galatia. Go to Acts chapter 16 with me. Just keep your place here. And look at Acts chapter 16. In verse 1. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him whom Paul, uh, him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews, which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. You notice here that they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia. And there are actually a few cities that are mentioned here just in these verses alone. There's others that are not mentioned here, but the cities of Antioch, not Paul's home church or home city, but Antioch of Galatia, the city of Iconium, the city of Lystra, Derby, and such. These are all part of the region of Galatia. These were all churches that were established, and Paul labored hard in these places. He and Barnabas had moved through that province city by city, and they would enter into the synagogues. They would proclaim the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And all along the way, they were met with opposition. Some of the crowds would just shout them down. Others would drive them out of town. It was in Lystra that Paul was stoned, that he was dragged out of the city. He was left for dead. It was a hard ministry in this region, but the Lord blessed it. 
because small churches were established in every one of these places. It was a hard ministry, but a fruitful ministry that the Lord had blessed. And the reason was, is because these Gentiles, not Jews, but these Gentiles who had been born into spiritual darkness had turned from their paganism to the light of the gospel to serve the living God. What a glorious thing. And all along the way in each of these cities, churches were established. And Paul and Barnabas, at the end of the, his missionary journey, went back and revisited each of these places on their way home and strengthened these churches. That was the first time that Paul had been in the region. About three years later, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 22, the Bible says, And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. That's his home church. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And so on Paul's third, second, end of second, third missionary journey right in there, Paul went back to these churches to strengthen them again. And the point I'm making is that Paul had quite involvement with these churches, with these people. He had spent some time with them. He was invested in them. It was a hard ministry, a hard labor for the Lord, but it was fruitful. Now, consider the people of Galatia. The Galatians were described by historians as being warm-hearted, yet impulsive people. They were generous, but they were also fickle and argumentative sometimes warlike. That's how they were described. I didn't make that up. I read that. And so they were considered to be warm-hearted, yet impulsive people. They were generous people, yet they were fickle and argumentative people, and sometimes warlike. And I found that very interesting, because what we read in Galatians chapter 5 are the works of the flesh, and what is notable is that of the 15 works of the flesh that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, eight of them involve strife in relationships. Isn't that interesting? That they were described as warlike, argumentative. And Paul talks about the works of the flesh. And we'll talk about some of that in just a little bit. In fact, go to chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5. In verse 20, verse 19 tells us that the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, all these are physical things. But then he gets to verse 20, he says, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Eight of the 15 involve strife in relationships. And I think it's a good reminder for us, and note this, it's a good reminder for us that usually if there's strife somewhere, the works of the flesh are also involved somewhere. It's a good reminder when it comes to relationships especially. So the people of Galatia were this 
type of people. Now, I want to talk to you here about the nature of the doctrinal problem that Paul was addressing here and give you a little background to it. These churches that Paul had established in the region, they had readily received him. Uh, when he went to Iconium and Lystra, there were definitely those who had readily received him. But there were also those who were just as readily uh, uh, able to stone him when they were stirred up by his enemies. And so that's that fickleness that we're talking about here. An element that readily received him, but also an element that was ready to stone him when they were stirred up by his enemies. And something very alarming had happened in these churches. Not very long after Paul had left the region and returned back to Antioch, something came in that began to threaten the work that he had begun. And the very thing that was the problem was that a group of converted Jews had come in and started teaching and introduced a system of works salvation. And what it was, was that it consisted of, of circumcision and ceremonial law-keeping for all Gentile believers if they were to be truly saved. So in other words... Paul comes and he preaches the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what they had received. And it wasn't long until some of the converted Jews had come in and started teaching that these Gentile believers, if they were to truly be saved, they also had to be circumcised or keep some of the ceremonial law. If you look back in chapter 1 again, in verse 6, this is why Paul says, it, it hadn't been very long, it's why he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He says, he says you've been called into the grace of Christ. You were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now the, you, you've been, you're, you're being removed from that foundation to this works uh, salvation, this circumcision, which is another gospel. It's, a, it's not another one of the same kind. It's not equal. It is something entirely different, and it's no gospel at all. And the result was this weird mixture of grace and works. And the reason why it was this weird mixture of grace and works is because they didn't deny that salvation was by faith in Christ. They didn't deny that. But see, they added to it. And Paul argues against this. Note what he says in verse 7 then, which is not another. It's not another one of the same kind. But there are some which trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Notice what Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Paul says it's not another one of the same kind. It's not equal. It's not just as good. It's not a gospel at all. And no flesh can be justified by the works of the law. So this is, 
the very thing that Paul is really addressing in this epistle is that they were being removed from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing that he is addressing in this epistle is that he's also defending his apostleship against charges that he was not a true apostle. You get wind of that right away. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He says, my authority and my apostleship, it's not of men, it's of God. It's not by man, it's of Jesus Christ. And I speak on the authority of the Lord. He says, basically, he's like, uh, all all of those who would accuse him of not being a true apostle, you don't know what you're talking about. And so he defends his apostleship as well in this epistle. And those were the the main things. There was a name that was given to these false teachers who came in to teach this false gospel. They were called Judaizers or legalists. And it was due to their adding works of the law to the gospel of grace. And obviously Paul preached salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. That was the message that the Galatians had originally heard. That was the message that they had responded to. That was the message that they had believed in. And so this new message of faith plus works caused a lot of confusion among these young churches. And being relatively young and inexperienced in the faith, they were being swayed by these false teachers who not only denied the gospel that Paul preached, but they denied that Paul himself was actually an apostle. And Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Like, you know better. He says you're foolish. And this was a serious problem. And what's notable about this is that Paul, Paul completely changed the tenor of his writing when he wrote this epistle compared to others. We get a sense of severity in his writing, a sense of sternness, a sense of solemnness in the way this is written. And it is very different from other epistles that Paul wrote to churches. And there's a lot of things that, are, that Paul usually included in other epistles to other churches that are not found here in this one. This is the only time in all of Paul's writing in which he doesn't express thankfulness for them. That's interesting. It's the only time in all of his writings where Paul didn't ask them to pray for him. It's the only time where where he does not give a word of commendation or praise to the church. In all the others, he says, I thank the Lord for you. And I thank God for how you're growing in grace and knowledge and, 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 uh, and the evidence that you are truly converted to Christ. He doesn't give any kind of commendation or praise. He doesn't ask them to pray. He doesn't express thankfulness. He doesn't mention their standing in Christ. He doesn't mention by name all of those who are with him, how often they would commend themselves to the churches with my brothers, salute you. He doesn't do any of that. And there's a reason for it. 
There's a sternness, a solemnness to it, because this was a serious problem in these churches. And some say that this was Paul's fighting epistle with the sternness of his words. And you can understand that because Paul is defending the gospel of Christ. There there are those who are perverting the gospel of Christ. There is righteous indignation and anger as he defends the gospel. And this is probably, the book of Galatians is probably the strongest declaration of defense of the doctrine of justification by faith in all of the scriptures. And so Paul uses some strong language to defend the gospel of grace. The central message, the thing that Paul really wants to get across as he addresses these issues is chapter 5 and verse 1, where he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The central message is to stand fast and firm in the faith. And why would you, why would you, why would you come out of bondage from a works-based salvation with, with the Jewish religion? Why would you undo all of that and find liberty in the grace of Christ and then go back and entangle yourself to bondage again? He says, you're foolish. And so this is the central message that Paul is trying to get across to these churches. The date and place, probably around 57 AD, it was written in the latter part of Paul's third missionary journey, as he had been here two times before, as he had heard what was going on, uh, it compelled him to write this epistle. We can outline this book and the outline that we're going to follow for this book is basically in three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 we would call an explanation. And we'll see a lot of that as we start working through. Chapters 3 and 4 we would call an exposition. Where Paul is working to solidify and reiterate uh, grace and grace alone apart from works. And then chapters 5 and 6 would be an exhortation. Paul gets very practical with these churches and how they are to live their Christian life. And the only way that they can live it is through the power of the Spirit of God and the life of Jesus Christ. So that's a basic outline of what we're going to follow as we start exploring through the book of Galatians. But before we wrap up, things up tonight I want to just go back to the two main purposes because there are some applications for us here the two main purposes for which Paul wrote this letter the first chapter of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia begins immediately to deal with the problem of legalism and real legalism by the way is works for salvation that's real legalism And Paul begins to deal with this immediately. He doesn't give commendation. He doesn't give praise. He gets right to the issue. And he wanted to counter and correct the false teaching that living under the Mosaic law, which is really the message of legalism and a a works mentality, he wanted to correct that idea that somehow there was some work involved as a requirement to be saved. And as I told you, 
there were those Jews who were beginning to require that these Gentiles also be circumcised along with faith in Christ in order to truly be saved. And so Paul goes about reestablishing that the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that would believe. And it shouldn't be surprising that Paul would attack this false teaching with all of his force behind it. And I would simply say this, that's not really any different than what we face today here as well. Because we also deal with the proliferation of perversion when it comes to the true gospel of grace. In our culture, in our society, we need to contend with the health and, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the health and well social gospel. The, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> those that would purport <coughs> that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And the reason that you exist and is to you give glory to God by what you have and so on. If you're sick or, or you're poor, you're not giving glory to God. You're not fulfilling your purpose in this world. That's a false gospel. We also need to contend with what's something that's even more dangerous, I believe, and that's easy believism or weak repentance. We have quote, good churches that are preaching the gospel, supposedly, but they preach a gospel that's not another. It's not another one of the same kind. It's not equal. It's not a gospel at all. Just believe in Jesus. Just believe in Jesus. Get the crowds to come and believe in Jesus and say your prayer and run them through the water trough and like cattle and baptize them and, and look, at, look at all of the production. Look how we're serving God. And how many of those are actually truly converted and how many of those are members of the church and are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? How many of them you really never see again? Right? But, but we believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and we've got these converts. I think it's a dangerous, dangerous message, and it's not a real gospel. And Paul said, if anybody preaches any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. And a mark needs to be made, I believe. To stand on the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We deal with the proliferation of perversion. We deal with false religion like Catholicism for example. They don't deny that Jesus, that the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. They don't deny that it takes faith in Jesus Christ. But it's faith in Christ and this. And the sacraments are a vehicle of saving faith to Jesus Christ. Listen, there's a perversion of the gospel and a lot of deceived people. We should stand on the true gospel, and we should earnestly contend for it. Amen? Amen? Earnestly contend for the faith, the very truth itself. Amen. And we shouldn't be ashamed to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. We shouldn't be ashamed to stand up and name names. We shouldn't be. I've been in places where you think you're preaching to the choir, you think you're preaching to everybody who agrees with you and you bring up a name of, of some famous, quote, independent Baptist preacher of some time and he was a charlatan. He was a false preacher. His life showed it. And you get independent Baptists who get all up in a tizzy because you said something 
something derogatory or negative about so-and-so. Shame on them! We shouldn't be afraid or ashamed to name names. In fact, when we read later on here, when Peter and the others who had come from Jerusalem were, they were eating with Gentiles. And when the Jews came around, Peter withdrew himself. And, and Paul says here that even Barnabas got carried away in all this. And Paul says, I withstood him to the face and I said before all. Paul wasn't ashamed to name names. And neither should we. Because it's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way of salvation. Amen? So, we deal with the proliferation of the perversion, just like Paul did in his day. The second thing is this. Paul also wanted these believers to understand that they can live the supernatural Christian life only, only, by surrender to and reliance upon the life of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God enabling them. That is the only way that they could live the Christian life. There was no ability in the flesh to live the Christian life. Paul mentions several things. Look in chapter 2 and verse 20. Chapter 2 and verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Paul says the life that I live in the flesh, the only way it can be lived is through Jesus Christ, the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at chapter 3 in verse 2. Paul says, This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Paul again talks about the fact that you started in the Spirit. You think that you can live the Christian life apart from the Spirit? No, you're not going to be made perfect in the flesh. Look at verse three or verse 5. <clears throat> he says, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doth he, doth he it by the works of the law or by the hear, hearing of faith? Where does this come from? It's only by faith in Christ. Look at verse 14. He says in verse 14 of chapter 3, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that ye might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Look at chapter 4 in verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He says, my heart is that Christ is formed in you. Look at chapter 5 in verse 4. <clears throat> he said, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. You can't live this life outside of God's grace. If you... If you try by the works of the law, he says, Christ is of no effect to you. But then look at verse 16. He says, this I say then, after all of this, 
This I say then, you can't live in the flesh. He says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. He says, this I say then, here's the conclusion. After all of this, you walk in the spirit because that's the only thing that's going to work. And you're not and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the key to walking in freedom from the law, freedom from works, freedom from the world, freedom from the devil, freedom from the flesh is to walk directed and enabled by the Holy Spirit of God rather than trying to keep the law or a list of rules. Notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 5. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. These two don't mix together. They're, in fact, they're contrary, the one to the other. And, the, and so that you can't do the things that you would. But he says in verse 18, but if ye be led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So the idea is you can't live this Christian life in the flesh at all. You can only live it through the power of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God enabling you. How then do you know that you're walking in the Spirit? Or how do you know if your flesh is controlling you? We like to say I'm led by the Spirit. I'm not living in the flesh. How do you know? Well, here's a question. Are you boastful? Are you proud? Are you oppositional? Are you contrary? Are you confrontational? Are you envious? Look at verse 26 of chapter 5. He says, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul says, hey, you know what? Don't be desirous of vainglory. Are you boastful? Are you proud? Are you contrary? Are you confrontational? He says provoking one another. You know what that means? That's not a good thing that Paul's talking about here. Provoking one another here means to continually irritate or to challenge. In other words, always nitpicking, always challenging, always irritating. And it's not a good challenge that he's talking about. He's talking about nitpicking. And the reason why it's wrong is because there's the wrong motive behind it. The wrong motive is to is of pride and envy. He says, don't be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. How do you know if you're walking in the spirit of the flesh? Well, if you look back in verse... 19 and we find the works of the flesh verse 19 says now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these adultery fornication uncleanness lasciviousness you know when it comes to the works of the flesh we like to stop on verse 19 because those are the really bad ones right the adultery the fornication the uncleanness the lasciviousness. We like to park right there and major on verse 19. Those are the bad ones. You're really in the flesh. And we want to skip over verse 20 and 21. Which says, these are also works of the flesh, idolatry, 
witchcraft, hatred. That word hatred means hostility. It means opposition. Variance. That word means quarrelings. These are works of the flesh. Emulations, wrath. Wrath is talking about anger to the point of breathing hard. You get worked up, you get angry, and you're, 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 you're huffing and puffing. Because I'm so angry. Strife. It means factions. It means contentions. And usually because it's not my way. We're at odds with each other because this is not my way and there's some contention here. Envyings. That's jealousy. That's spite. We behave a certain way because we're actually, and we have attitudes toward others because we're jealous of them. We, have, we do things spitefully. He says, sedition, or excuse me, strife is factions and contentions. Seditions. Seditions is disunion and division. These are all things that deal with relationships with people. As we like to park in verse 19, the really bad ones, but skip over verse 20 and 21 when it comes to how our relationships are with other people. Those are also works of the flesh. These are all heart attitudes that are being mentioned here. And so the question, and Paul wants, Paul wants these people to understand, you cannot live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot live the Christian life apart from, from the power of Christ. There is no flesh. There is no works. There's nothing that you can do inside of it. It is all the Lord. And so the question I would ask here is, how are your relationships? How do you know if you're walking in the Spirit or you're walking in the flesh? Hey, do you got strife in relationships? Some variance, some quarrelings, some seditions, some disunion, some division. How are your relationships? What are they marked by? Note what verse 13 of chapter 5 says. It says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. What is, what is it that's marking your relationships? Is it all these things that involve the works of the flesh and strife? Is it verses 13 to 16 by love serving one another? Or is it marked by verses 20 and 21, the works of the flesh? Is there fruit of the Spirit in your relationships? Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Is there fruit of the Spirit in your relationships? Or is it marked by the works of the flesh? How do you know? Well, what characterizes those things? That's how you know. Is it fruit of the spirit or is it evidence of the flesh? 
And the point is we cannot live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit and the life and the power of Jesus Christ. All we can do and what we should do is simply yield to the Spirit of God to be led by him. That's what Paul is trying to get across. And listen, again, there's strife. The works of the flesh are involved. So, before we begin Galatians, take some time. Take a few minutes even now as you're sitting here tonight and ask the Lord to search your heart and see if there be any hurtful or wicked way in you, anything that is impeding the flow of Christ-likeness being formed in your life. The psalmist said, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we ought to pray. Lord, know my heart, search me, and lead me by your spirit. We want to we think that we're, we're, we're the ones who are right. But if there's works of the flesh that are characterizing parts of our life or our relationships, we need to be honest. Amen? Am I really led by the spirit? Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there gentleness? Is there goodness? That's, that's when the Spirit of God is the one who's leading. Amen? So, do I have a works mentality or even subtle tendencies in that direction? Do I follow a list of do's and don'ts? That if I keep those things, then somehow I've earned God's favor and blessing? Do I have a do mentality that... I'm seeking the applause of others. If I do these things, then I'm going to be favored. Do I experience joy in my life, even when circumstances would dictate otherwise? Is there gentleness and goodness and meekness in my relationships? Am I living according to the lusts of my flesh, or am I living in the power of the Spirit in all areas of my life? even relationships. And so the thought is, search me, Lord. And as we begin to break these verses down, we're going to see this truth come out over and over again, that it's God's grace, not of works. Amen? And as we do, let's ask the Lord to grow us into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word tonight, and Lord, we thank you for the fact that the word of God is profitable. It's profitable for us. Sometimes it's reproof. Sometimes it's correction. Sometimes it stings a little, but it's always profitable so that the man of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. And, and Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to have a heart to just, a heart for God, a heart for closeness with the Lord, a heart for obedience to the word of God, a surrendered and yielded heart to the spirit of God. Lord, lead us. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.